0: We welcome you to the REST podcast. The messages you will hear have been taken from sessions from past REST conferences. We pray that God will use this message to encourage and strengthen you in your walk with the Lord and your ministry for Him. I want you to open your Bible with me, if you will, to my favorite gospel record, the Gospel According to Mark. Uh, Some time ago on our podcast, we walked through the Gospel According to Mark. I did it as much for myself as for anybody because I needed it. It's a tremendous, tremendous book of the Bible. And um, we were talking, Sanders and I were talking about favorite books. I don't know if you have a favorite gospel record or not. Brother Kaiser, one of my Bible teachers used to say his favorite was whichever one he was studying at the time, and I think that's a good answer. It's all the Word of God. But I do especially love Mark. I don't know all the reasons for that. Maybe it's his writing style or the way God used it in my life. Mark, of course, had a personal friendship with Peter, and so it is, it is believed that much that Mark wrote about was from the eyewitness account from Peter's vantage point. That would make a lot of sense, by the way, uh, because Peter was a man of action and Mark is a book of action, and uh, it is that. I mean, as a matter of fact, 14 out of the 16 chapters start with and or straightway or it is this this fast-moving drama. I think the word straightway, which means immediately or forthwith, is used like 42 times in 16 chapters. I mean, you start reading it and you can read through Mark's 16 chapters fairly quickly because it's just action, 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 action all the way through. Mark emphasizes less of the teachings of Jesus. Not that that's not important, but that wasn't the Holy Ghost emphasis through his writing. He emphasizes the works of Jesus. Uh, none of the gospel writers emphasize the hands of Christ as much as Mark does. And that's significant because what is a servant doing? He's serving. He's working. He's, he's using his hands to accomplish the work that needs to be done. There's no genealogical record because And nobody cares about the genealogy of the servant. He's just the servant. But, of course, we know as we read the gospel according to Mark that he's not just any servant. He's the perfect servant. And uh, it's just it's rich with truth. But I want to bring in Mark chapter 1 to one verse. Now, we've come to our our closing time together, and uh, we've come full circle, really, uh, in this emphasis to one very practical, personal thing. Mark chapter 1 has in it, I think, one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible on keeping a healthy soul, and it is this verse. Mark chapter 1, verse number 35. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. I want you to write down on your paper across the top this little expression, a day in the life of a busy minister. Now, the reality is we're all busy people. We live in a busy, hectic world. And sometimes preachers especially can get so inundated with things to do and people that need their attention that the busyness steals our joy. Busyness steals the heart. You can be busy, functioning, working, laboring, serving. Remember what book we're in? What book? The Gospel according to what? Mark. And Mark emphasizes Jesus as what? Servant. So in the midst of the the service, it's easy to let that busyness rob you of the very reason you started serving in the first place. Do you remember why you got in the ministry? Did you really get in the ministry to administrate things all day long? Like back when you first surrendered to be in the Lord's work, was it your chief desire to sit behind a desk and look at a computer screen all afternoon? Was that really what propelled you to say, I want to give my life, to serve the Lord, to run programs and print bulletins? I mean, was this really what was in our heart? And yet, somewhere along the way, the busyness of it all catches us. Some of the busyness is the pull of people. Some of the busyness is the pressure of what needs to be done. There's always more that needs to be done. That never ends. Listen to me. There is no end to the work, but there is an end to you. There's always more to be done. And frankly, and most convicting of all, Sometimes the busyness is just our own pride. I mean, we just, we like to be busy. And we not only like to be busy, we really like to talk about how busy we are. And we like to complain and talk about all we have to get done and all the places we have to be and all the people that need our attention. Because really what we want is somebody to say, well, bless your heart. You're having such a hard time. It's not like we really want divine enabling. We want human pity. But that doesn't help your soul stay healthy. In fact, in the end, instead of refreshing you, it actually drains the life right out of you. So Finally, you don't even want to be in the ministry anymore. You don't want to get up and go and do and preach and teach because something in the midst of the busyness has robbed the vital element from your soul. So how do you know that? Because I have been there. Who is Mark writing to? Men of action. As a matter of fact, it's believed that Mark really wrote to the Roman mind, and the Romans, they were doers. They were, they were get-it-done people. They were charge the next hill, build the next city, get the next thing done. Sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? See, I'm speaking to men of action and women of action, people that have much to get done. I mean, let's just be honest. Let's get real for a minute. We're at the end of this rest meeting, and already your mind is starting to kick back in gear. I mean, you know, you got to speak tonight, and you got phone calls to return on the way home, and you've got uh, an office full of things to get done tomorrow morning. You got that surgery to be at early, and on and on and on and on and on. So let me ask you a question. When you go back home, you're going to go right back into the same routine you left? Like nothing's going to change? You're going to go back and jump right in, feet first, right into the midst of the mayhem that you just stepped out of and you've gotten a a little breath of heaven and now you think, I'm just going to go back and live the same way I was living before. I want to say to you, in the midst of one of Jesus' busiest days, we find the greatest secret you know what Bible teachers call Mark chapter 1? They call it Christ's busy day at Capernaum. I wish you had time to read the whole chapter with you. You just skim it. Just scan down through the chapter. He preaches sermons in Mark chapter 1. He calls disciples in Mark chapter 1. He casts out a devil in Mark chapter 1. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. Everybody knows that was a big deal in Mark chapter 1. And then, look at Mark chapter 1, verse number 32, and that even when the sun did set, he relaxed. Enjoyed just a little quiet for his soul. No, because the pull of the people and the pressure of ministry doesn't go away just because the day is done. And even when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and them that were possessed with devils, and all the city was gathered together at the door. I mean, it's like the deluge, the dam breaks. Everybody shows up. Now, let's just be, let's get really practical. How many of you know, once you've been at the hospital, the funeral home, uh, the restaurant, and the church, and three other homes during that day, how many of you know when you get to your house, you'd like to be there all by yourself? Would you raise your hand? You don't want everybody to show up, but the very house where Jesus is staying, the whole city shows up on the front door and say, we heard what you've been doing all day. We want in on that. You know, you better be careful what you ask for. Everybody wants more. A bigger church, more people to minister to, greater influence. May I just say to you that just because you have more doesn't mean you're getting more done. As a matter of fact, This is not my message, but I just feel prompted to say it. Could anybody tell me the size of the church at Ephesus? Or how many people they ran in Colossae? Or how big the building was in Philippi? As a matter of fact, you can study the entire New Testament and not find the size of any of those local churches once you get outside of what initially happens in Jerusalem. And why is that? Because that is not God's emphasis. And we have shifted the whole thing in ministry around to how many people got in the building on Sunday or how many people are on the roll. And I want to say to you, that's not the way to measure a healthy church or a healthy soul. That cannot be the measurement. That's the world's way, not the Lord's way. As a matter of fact, you want to talk about success. Look at verse number 34. And healed many that were sick of divers' diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. I mean, it sounds to me like this is, this is the epitome. I mean, this is the climax. Wouldn't you think, let me ask you a question. This is early in Christ's ministry. We're in Mark chapter 1. Wouldn't you think at this juncture this would be a great time to rally all the troops and really get something done? I mean, like while wow, the whole city is following you. This is not every preacher's goal. I mean, the whole city showed up at your church. Like everybody showed up saying, we heard what's going on over here. We want whatever it is you have. And that's the very moment where the Holy Spirit says, and don't forget to write this down, Mark. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. And I want you to write this down, would you please, that Jesus was busy but not in a hurry. Do you know there's a difference between busyness and hurry? Busyness refers to your actions. We are busy people. I'm not suggesting you're not going to be busy when you get home, but hurry is an attitude. It is a spirit. It was Chadwick that said, hurry is the death of prayer. You know why that is? Because you don't hurry into God's presence, and once you get there, you don't want to hurry out. So if your soul is constantly in a hurry, you may just be rushing right past the Lord. What was it that the Lord said in Psalm 46, verse 10? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Maybe, maybe the Lord's not being exalted like he wants to be exalted because we don't really know him like we ought to know him. And maybe we don't know him like we ought to know him because we haven't been still enough. The writer of Proverbs wrote in Proverbs 19 and verse 10. Let's just turn to it. Mark this in your Bible. Isn't it funny, these Proverbs, these, these wise sayings that we miss? Look at Proverbs chapter 19. Mark this in your Bible. Proverbs chapter 19, verse number 2. Also that the soul be without knowledge, it is not good. And we all say amen to that. We want to study and learn and grow. We want knowledge and wisdom. But did you ever notice the end of verse 2? And he that what? Hasteth with his feet what? (laughs) Do you know when I make most of my mistakes when I get in a hurry? You know why? Because we get ahead of God. The little New Testament expression, walk in the Spirit. You know that expression, walk in the Spirit? It literally means to be in step with the Holy Spirit. It means you don't lag behind him, and it means you don't get ahead of him. Look, the easiest thing on earth for me to do is jump up in the morning and work. The hardest thing for me to do is get up in the morning and wait. But it's in the waiting that God shows me what I'm supposed to work on. I wonder sometimes we're not praying for divine appointments and then missing them all day long. Because we're in such an everlasting hurry to get done what we think we have to get done. We've missed it. On your way back to our text, stop off in Isaiah just for a second. Would you please look at Isaiah chapter 28. I didn't plan to show you this, but look at Isaiah chapter 28. This is a deeply convicting verse to me. Look at verse number 16. Therefore, Thus saith the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. By the way, we know that's not just a place, that's a person. He's describing Messiah. This is Christ. Don't you love to see Jesus on every page of Scripture? Look at the end of verse 16. He that believeth shall not what? Make haste. I say to you that the life of faith is not a hurried life. That the faith life is a life of waiting on God, sensing His divine timing, and obeying His promptings. And you can't do that if you're so hurried you have no time to spend with Him. So here is Jesus in Mark chapter number 1 with everybody pulling on him. As a matter of fact, look at verse number 36. He's in the place of prayer. He's in the secret place, verse 36. And Simon, and they that were with him, followed after him. And when they found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. The irony of this is this is actually what most preachers would love to hear. Everybody wants to hear you preach. Everybody wants to to know what you have to say. Everybody just like spend some time with you, Lord. But did you notice that the Lord does not go out to them until first he has been in the presence of the Father? He is not willing to speak to people until first he has been in communion with his heavenly Father. That the most important work, would you write this down, the most important work we ever do is commune with God. And why is that? Because as we commune with God, God works. He works on us, and he works in us, and he works through us. It was Bunyan that said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can do nothing until you've prayed. Maybe we're getting so little done because we're getting done only what we can get done and not what God can get done. And we excuse it; <clears throat> we were really the do because we say things like this. So well, you know, brother, time short, time short. That's true. The Bible even says redeeming the time, but then it says this because the days are evil. Watch, please. It's not so much so much a matter of of haste as it is emphasis. What you give your time to. Would you write this statement down, please? Life is more about emphasis than speed. We think if we're going to live urgent lives, that means we have to have a certain pace. But in fact, it's not so much about pace as it is about finding God's priority. What does God want done? And it's funny, as you get older, you start slowing down. Don't you start slowing down? The emphasis that I've used about enjoying the journey, I'm starting to see it in my own life. I mean, used to, and I travel all the time, but you can ask my wife. I mean, used to, we set out on a road trip, and I, I gave the same little speech to the whole family every time we left. You know, everybody go to the bathroom now because we're not stopping for six hours. You know what I'm talking about. It was all about getting there. As I got older, we started stopping a little more just along the way. And you know what I found out? You actually make more memories at the stops than sometimes you ever do when you get there, wherever there is. And I wonder sometimes in ministry, if we're not so intent on getting to some goal, I mean, who even set that goal? Like, where'd that come from? Did I come up with that, or is that from God? That we're actually missing the Lord along the way. Do you think any minister on earth was ever any busier than Jesus? I mean, the one who said when he was 12, I must be about my father's what? I mean, I'd say his business was pretty important business. And yet, may I ask you a question? Why did he spend 30 years before he began his public ministry? Let me ask a different question. He knew he only had three and a half years. Tell me why he wasn't more in a hurry. He didn't go to every town. He didn't heal every sick person. He didn't raise every dead person. Why is that? Because watch this, please. He didn't say, I've come to get done everything I can get done in the short time I have. He said, I have come to do my Father's will. And whatever the Father wants, that's all I want. Nothing more and nothing less. Watch this, please. And where did he stay in constant contact with the Father's will? It was in prayer. And I want to submit to you that apart from Mark chapter 1, verse number 35, and that principle and that pattern, he could not have accomplished all that the Father had sent him to do. So let's ask and answer a few questions. Number one, I want you to write this down. Notice when he prayed. Very important, two principles here about when he prayed. First of all, notice the little word and, and in the morning. And means something came before. In fact, we've looked at it already in Mark chapter 1. A lot came before. So I want you to write this down, that Jesus prayed after busy times. This is very important. Please don't miss this. You know, after we've been very busy and we've worked very hard, what we have a tendency to do, we have a tendency to relax our prayer life. At the end of a busy Lord's Day, I just want to sit and vegetate. How about you? At the end of an extended series of meetings, when I'm spent and exhausted, I have this tendency to think, well, I have given enough spiritually. I'm just going to sit here and just relax. And by the way, there's a time for just sitting and relaxing and sleeping and communicating with friends and all that. I believe that. The reality is it is at that moment that if you're not careful, the devil will get his foot in the door. I don't know about you, but I feel weaker spiritually after a great expenditure of ministry than any other time. And I want to say to you, that's the very time we need to be praying. But now, wait a minute. Not only for ourselves, but for others. Did you ever notice when Jesus did most of his praying connected to his preaching? Before I give you the answer to that, let me ask you, when do you do most of your praying for your preaching and teaching? i tell you when I do most of mine, before I preach. Yet when you look at the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, it seems to me that he did a lot of his preaching and teaching and then he went to a solitary place and prayed for the ones he just ministered to. Why would that be? Do you remember his parable about the the bird stealing the seed away? The most dangerous time is not before, it's after. Could it be we do more of our praying before our ministry because really the motivation is not so much the glory of God as it is, Dear Lord, please help me not be embarrassed. Oh, God, please get me through this message. You know, I don't feel ready, and I don't want to make a mess of it. And yet Jesus is praying here after. It's after the labor, after the preaching, after the victory. He's communing. That's not all. Look at the verse again. In the morning, rising up a great while. Notice this word, before. So he prays after, and now he prays ahead. It's the demands of a new day. Notice the word morning here in the morning. He knows more is coming, more people to be ministered to, more places to go. In fact, he's going to say to his disciples in verse 38, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. How did did he get ready for all that next preaching and next ministry? He did it in the place of prayer. And I want to suggest to you that somehow, if this is actually important to us like we say it is, it's going to have to change our schedule when we get home. Now, I'm not answering for you. I'm, I'm thinking, frankly, about me right now. What do I need to adjust? Uh, traveling is, is different. And one thing I said to some of the people last night, I've had to learn a new rhythm of life on the road. When I was stationary at a church and school for nearly two decades, it was set, and I could plan it a little better. But with different travel schedules and pastors and churches and every meeting is a little different, I've had to learn a little different ebb and flow of life. But I've had to learn this too. If I'm not careful, I'll make that an excuse for not spending the time with God in the secret place that I ought to spend with him. This will never happen by accident. It must be intentional. So number one, A day in the life of a busy preacher, he's praying after and he's praying ahead. That's when he prayed. Number two, would you write this down? Notice where he prayed. Two principles here as well. First of all, he prayed apart. Notice the verse, and in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out. Do you see that word out? Apart. Without distraction. Out of the fray. Oh, as Jesus said, when you enter into your closet, what did he say? Shut the door. He didn't say enter in the closet and pray. He said enter in the closet and shut the door. Can I tell you, prayer's not hard. Shutting the door is hard. How many of you know how to talk? Would you raise your hand? Then you know how to pray. Because it's just talking this way instead of this way, it's communion with God. Our problem is not that we don't know how to pray. Our problem is we have a very difficult time shutting the door to everything else so we can commune with God alone. And practically speaking, what does that mean? Look, please, just a moment. This is one of the greatest enemies to our secret time. For every good tool that technology brings, this is not healthy for your soul when you're trying to commune with God. I keep a prayer list on this, and I use it some for, I shouldn't have picked this up. I'm looking at things. Text messages coming through. Isn't that funny how you get distracted? Sometimes I read the Bible on it, but I have learned That even when I do that, if I don't put it on do not disturb or airplane mode or something, things pop up and somebody needs something and suddenly I'm communicating with somebody else instead of with God. You're going to have to figure out how to disconnect so you can connect. Here's the second principle about where he prayed. He not only prayed apart, he prayed alone. Notice what the Bible says. He went out and departed into a solitary place. You'll find again in Luke chapter 9, verse number 18, the disciples came looking for him. And they wanted to hear from him and where was he he was praying alone someone has suggested that there are three types of solitude would you write this down three types of solitude there's the solitude of time there's the solitude of place and most importantly there's the solitude of spirit it's good to go up in the mountains and get a cabin and be all by yourself by a little creek that's a solitude of place and all God's people said amen there's a solitude of time where you may get alone early in the morning before everybody else gets up, and so you've got that time all to yourself, just you and God, and I think that's very healthy, and that's good. But the greatest solitude to learn, and there's a discipline in it, is the solitude of heart. When you can get to the place where even if you're surrounded by people, you can try to get yourself in step with the Lord, and as old Vance Havner used to say, in tune with heaven. I'm going to tell you something, there's nothing like it. A few weeks ago, I had a really, really early flight one morning, and it was ungodly early. And I was by myself, and I was up, but I wasn't fully awake. You know what I mean by that. And I got on the plane, and I sat down, and I just started meditating and thinking about the goodness of God. And before I realized it, now I was on a plane. I was surrounded by people. Before I realized it, I was oblivious to those people, and the Lord seemed so very present so very near, closer than the guy sitting next to me. And I had such a sweet, precious moment with the Lord. I'm telling you, we must learn to practice those moments all through the day. And the best way to do it all through the day is to begin by having a definite time like that with God early in the day, before the fray, before the phone starts ringing, before everything else happens. Look, maybe you're not a morning person. How many of your morning people would you raise your hand? Your morning people. Good. How many of your evening people would you raise your hand? Isn't that interesting? How many of your neither? Raise both hands. You've got two good hours in the middle of the day. Thank you, Pastor Hooks, for your honesty. God bless you. I see that hand, yes. The truth of the matter is, whatever you are by personality or physical makeup, whatever you want to call it, spiritually speaking, there's something to getting your eyes on the Lord before you're distracted by the, the news of the day. Practically speaking, some things have helped me. One thing that has helped me greatly is I try in the morning not to reach for this first. Now, that's very difficult. I I use this for my alarm every morning. Perhaps you do that. And the temptation is to look and see, did I miss any messages? Did I miss a call? Uh, Woke up this morning, and I'd I'd gotten a text message from my son. Well, that's something I want to see. He sent me a picture he'd drawn. And uh, praying for you today, and it meant something to me. But if you're not careful, you'll get so in tune with this before you get your eyes on the Lord that the morning will be spent, and you haven't even communed with God. Something that I've learned, I don't know if this is true of you or not, but if I will get myself awake before I get out of bed, now I know that sounds counterproductive. Uh, I've always heard people say, get up, and get going, and and I get it. I had a professor who say he didn't even feel spiritual until he had his second cup of coffee in the morning, and so I get that too now at this stage in life. But I have learned, even before I stir enough to wake my wife, if I can get myself awake and just lay there in the bed for a few moments and say to the Lord before I ever get up, Lord, thank you for letting me live to see this day, that at that moment I'm recognizing the presence of God And suddenly, my frame of mind is different. For a period of time, I even started doing this. I've not done it every morning. I need to do it more. But I was thinking about that verse. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God. I would say to the Lord in the morning when I woke up before I got out of the bed, I'd say, now, Lord, I'd stretch my body out real, real long. I'd stretch my body out on the bed. It may sound funny to you, but I would say, now, Lord, this bed is my altar this morning. And I want to be a living sacrifice. So on this altar this morning, I want to say to you, I give myself back to you for this day. It helped me to start thinking about him. Tom Sexton told me his practice every morning when he gets up, when he he gets ready, when he's putting his shoes on and he puts his foot in his shoe, he prays with both of them, Dear Lord, fill me today with the Holy Spirit. Fill me today with the Holy Spirit so that wherever you want to go, I'll go there today. I like that. Whatever it takes for you to begin to practice the presence of God early in the morning, you must learn to do that. When he prayed, where he prayed, but here's the crux of it all. Number three, why he prayed. Have you ever pondered why Jesus prayed? I mean, he's God, right? How I many of you believe he's all God? He's all God and all man. He's, he's not 50-50. He's 100-100. He is the perfect God robed in flesh. He lays aside the, the free expression of his glory, but he does not lay aside his, his deity, his divinity. So why did Jesus pray? I'll give you three simple reasons. Number one, because of his humanity. Remember, he is all man. As man, he grew tired and weary and hungry and thirsty. It hurts and needs He's all man. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we learn that he was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. He's the perfect man, but he is all man. And here's my point to you. If the perfect man needed communion with the Father, how much more does a flawed man like me need that? My very humanity ought to drive me to God to realize I need something much greater than what I have. So, number one, he prayed because of his humanity. Number two, he prayed because of his humility. Remember, he humbled himself, Philippians two. Your prayer expresses your mind. The mind of Christ was a mind of humility, so his prayer is an expression of the fact that he had taken a place of humble submission to the will of the Father. May I give you a definition for prayer? Prayer is our declaration of dependence on God. When you pray what you're actually saying is, I need you. When you pray, what you're saying is, I can't, but you can. I'm ignorant, but you're wise. I'm sinful, but you're holy. I'm weak, but you're strong. I'm incapable, but you're able. Aren't you glad he's able? And so, we should humble ourselves. You know, you can pray in any posture. In Scripture, most of the time, They prayed standing with heads bowed or laid out before God or on their knees. But there is something, there is something about bowing. Even if it's a bowed head or the bowed knee or laying out before God, there's something about bowing that reminds us that we are less and he is greater and that we are totally dependent on Him. Now, I can, I can drive down the road and pray. It's not a good time to close my eyes and pray, but it's a great time to pray. I enjoy that. I can walk and pray, but there still is something about setting aside times to bow in the presence of God because it's an expression of humility. Jesus prayed every day over every decision and at every difficulty. At every crossroads, He prayed because He had humbled Himself under the authority of the Father. Let me testify for a moment. Do you know the greatest struggle in my life at this juncture? And Maybe some of you have found this. The greatest struggle I'm having at this juncture is knowing the difference between what I could do and what I should do. Everybody wants you to get involved in what they've got going, and everybody has an agenda for you. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Everybody has something they want done. Everybody has a good idea. And by the way, I got a few of them. So I start thinking about what I could do. I could do that and could do that and could do that. And could. And, and yet I'm learning that there's a vital difference between all the things I could do. There are many things I could do. I could be a businessman today, but I shouldn't do that because this is what God has given me to do with my life. But even in the ministry, there are many things I could do, but just because I could do them doesn't mean I should do them. And the only place I can discern what I should do and what I should not do is in the presence of God prayed because of his humanity. He prayed because of his humility. But number three and most important, he prayed because of his holiness. Now, I want you to chew on this for a moment, please. Remember, he's all God. He's co-equal, co co-eternal. So if that is true, why pray? And could this be the greatest lesson of prayer in the prayer life of Jesus? Maybe this is the greatest lesson. Did it ever dawn on you that we do not know all that Jesus talked to the Father about? That John 17 really is one of the only places where we really see all of his prayers laid out like a prayer list and what a rich high priestly prayer that is because he was praying for us. That was that was for us, you see. Did it ever dawn on you that we don't know every time he went to prayer what he talked to the Father about? May I suggest to you that perhaps many times the reason he went to the Father to pray was not to get something, but just to be with the Father. Do you realize that before he ever came to earth, he had lived in unbroken fellowship with the Father and Spirit from eternity past? Why do you think it was such a big deal when he cried on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was the first moment that that fellowship from all eternity had been broken Whew. that's that's profound and all through his life, his, his great heart, hunger, and desire was just to commune and to live in communion. Maybe, maybe we've looked at this prayer thing all wrong. We've used it as a means to get what we want or what we think we need or what the church needs, when in reality what prayer is for is for us to stay in unbroken fellowship and communion with the Father. And if we live there, he will meet all of the needs we have. I'm for asking for things, and I'm for asking specifically and asking in faith, but I want to say to you, the greatest goal of prayer is just to be with him. Amen. Do you remember that one day Jesus was teaching, and, uh, and in the middle of his teaching, he looks up to heaven and says, Father, I thank Thee that thou hast heard me. They must have thought he was crazy. But he was at the same moment he was talking to them, he was communing with the Father. See, it was a life of communion. By the way, did you know there's a difference between communication and communion? So what's the difference? When I communicate, I share what's on my mind. But when I commune, I share my heart. There are levels, you see, in this. So sometimes in our prayer, we're communicating with God. We're, we're giving our list, our grocery list. All right, Lord, here's what I need today. da 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 da, da. You ever find yourself in a rut in your prayer life? saying the same old words, asking for the same old things. Maybe you're just communicating about what's on your mind instead of communing heart to heart with him. By the way, we've enjoyed the presence of God this week. There's no doubt. But but I was thinking about this recently. Do you ever consider how much joy he finds in your presence? See, the whole point of communion is not just that I feel better, that I, boy, I like that, Lord. That was good. I wonder, does the Lord ever smile at me? I wonder if the Father ever says, I I sure am glad you came to talk to me today. I've enjoyed being with you. My kids come and and they say, Dad, I need $10. (laughs) That's cheap, by the way, $10 anymore, that's cheap. I don't mind that. They're, They're mine. I love them. But I love it when one of them says, "Hey, Dad, can I just ride along with you? What do you need? I don't need anything. Just like to be with you. And I wonder how many days, the only thing I talk to my father about is what I want him to give me. And when was the last time you didn't ask him for anything, you just said, "I love you." Actually, the right way to say that is, "I love you, too. Because we love him because he first loved us. He always loves first. You see, in the holiness of Jesus, you see a picture of what real prayer is all about. That's why he was so ticked off when he went into the temple and drove out the money changers and said, My father's house is to be a house of what? Where's his father's house today? It's not the church building. The temple, I am the temple of the Holy Ghost. Let me ask you a question. Is your house a house of prayer? Are you a man or woman of communion with God? And for the record, we love to preach against those money changers, but if you study that out, now there's no doubt they were overcharging and skimming off the top, and there was unethical things going on there. But at the base level, what they were doing was actually just the functional part of the temple. Somebody had to have sacrifices. You could only use Jerusalem currency to even purchase those sacrifices. So people coming from outside had to change their money somewhere for that to even happen. Here's the point. Here's the point. Jesus says you've reduced all of your worship to a transaction with God, and you've missed the spirit of prayer. Is it possible we've done that? We got this transaction thing going with God where we bargain with Him and barter with Him, and we give Him certain things and ask Him to give us certain things, but we've missed the whole spirit of prayer, which is simply to be in the Father's house and to commune with Him constantly. And I believe the greatest reason why Jesus prayed is the reason we should pray, and that is just to be in His presence. Do you know the greatest blessing of prayer? It's the greatest blessing of heaven. And that is just to be with him. The thing that's going to be great about eternity is just being with him. And the beauty is God's made it so you don't have to wait till you get to heaven to enjoy that. You can do it now. Jesus very frequently went to the Garden of Gethsemane. I believe it was his prayer closet. John, I think it's chapter 7. The Bible says, every man went to his own house. Remember that? Every man went to his own house. And then chapter 8, verse 1 says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. I used to read that and think, that's so sad. He had no place to lay his head in life or in death. He had no house to go to. And I got thinking about the end of the day, and I thought, that's not sad. He went to the Father's house. That's where he went. He went to commune with the Father. He was, he was happier there than he would have been at Mary Martha's house. See, there's nothing like being in the presence of God. And and if you think that only works at a retreat, at a rest conference, then you've missed the point. It's for all of us every day, everywhere, no matter what you're dealing with. It's a day in the life of a busy minister. I want to end in 2 Chronicles. (laughs) Some of you say, seriously? Go with me to 2 Chronicles just a second. I'm just going to show you something God showed me this week in my own devotional reading. I was reading through 2 Chronicles 14. Isn't it funny how we get bogged down in certain of these portions of Scripture and all the names and all the history? And I was reading 2 Chronicles 14, not for the preacher's rest, just for me. And I came down to this verse in the midst of war in 2 Chronicles 14, 11, and it just struck me. And Asa cried unto the Lord his God, and said lord it is nothing with thee to help whether with many or with them that have no power help us O lord our god for we what's the next word we rest rest on thee and in thy name we go against this multitude oh lord thou art our god let not man prevail against thee and this is what god spoke to me about this week our rest is on him our rest is in the midst of the battle, not after the battle subsides. Some of you say, if I can get this fixed in my church or get that person to stop giving me a hard time, they'll all be peace and quiet. No, there'll be some other devil poke his head up. The rest is not after the battle. It's in the midst of the battle. But this is the connection I'm making to what I've given you today. The rest, Asa found, was only found through prayer. And if you want to rest when you get home, if you want to rest when you get home, Going to have to learn every day in the morning a great while before day to go out and depart into a solitary place and there pray thank you for listening we hope that the lord has used this message to speak to you the rest conference is a meeting designed to encourage and strengthen pastors missionaries evangelists and their wives along with other Christian workers serving the Lord in their local churches. REST 2020 is scheduled for September 7th through 9th at the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. We hope that you and your spouse will make plans to join us. For more information about REST, go to our website, therestconference.com.